Alright. <clears throat> Welcome to Making a Scene, the only podcast sponsored by Cornetto. I'm Harrison Williams. And I'm Chris Fabian. Each week we invite you to join our chaotic thoughts on film, television, and everything in between. And this week, our filmmaker spotlight on the great Edgar Wright. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Chris, I have to ask you, because I know you've gotten me a couple times. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Edgar Wright? I think Edgar Wright is one of the best voices in comedy today. So I think that we so we did a great comedy director in Adam McKay already. Mm-hmm. And Edgar Wright is a great counterpoint to the Adam McKay, Judd Apatow okay. comedy of the United States. Okay. I think that when people think about Edgar Wright, People who know who he is, mm-hmm. like that—that's the thing. He's one of those directors that I feel like, until very recently, never quite broke into the mainstream consciousness. But film nerds have kind of known who he was for a long time, ostensibly since he started with his first big, you know, feature film in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. But he's—he's he's one of those directors that you probably know a lot of people that have seen one or more of his movies but have no idea who he is but for those who do know him he's definitely known for being a very kinetic director and i'm sure a lot of people think about his soundtracks and his use of music in movies Hmm. okay and you know there's a american director who we haven't spotlighted yet who is kind of known for the same but edgar wright i think pulls it off a little better. It's different, okay. but I would argue perhaps a little better. But So it's interesting you bring up, you said uh, up until recently has not really mm-hmm. broken into the mainstream consciousness. Do you feel like he has? I don't know. I think that more, I think with Baby Driver, a mm-hmm. lot more people know who he is because you had... Baby Driver, which was, you know, reasonable success at the box office. In fact, it was, if I'm not mistaken, his most successful film, financially speaking. Um, And... Yes, with an asterisk. Okay. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) I'm just looking looking at the numbers. It's just... Just looking at the numbers of some of these, like, films that I consider to be, like, great 20th century or 21st century comedic and just film landmarks uh-huh. and just some of the numbers are just yeah yeah and, and that's that's the thing of it like his movies have found success critically mm-hmm. and he has a very devout following mm-hmm. but i think that with baby driver it was like man that was a pretty cool movie oh he did scott pilgrim i remember that yeah or any one of the the others that he's done that he'd be known for so i mean He's closer than he's ever been to, okay, to say that he's on the level of like a Ridley Scott or Spielberg or anything like that. He isn't, but you know, he's definitely somebody that I'm sure he's perfectly fine with the level of success that he's achieved because he's one of those guys that, you know, he grew up making movies on a super eight camera as a kid, right you now. So like he's appreciated among his people. So <laughs> and what more could you ask for, really? Right, right. Yeah. he. Um, it's interesting. So you talked sure. about how he's known for 
his music and some of his choreography throughout his mm-hmm. films in a number of different mm-hmm. ways. To me, the choreography is 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 an interesting point. Until having seen Baby Driver, I never really would have given the music in soundtrack form a lot of attention from his films. And that's not to say that it's a bad, it's just when I think about his standout hallmark on in film, it's his editing. His editing style is mm-hmm. this, I mean, almost like... It's like the Law and Order, dun, dun, but like for an entire movie, essentially. He's got this very like I don't know if I'm using the right the word correctly, but like syncopatic kind of flow to his films in a lot of cases that rhythmic, rhythmic, yeah. And it it you know it almost feels like a one shot, but like you're clearly seeing the cuts, but because everything flows so well together it's it's the kind of thing where like a character will fall over and as they're falling over it cuts to someone bringing a bar handle down a tap handle Mm -hmm. down you know things like that but it's like sustained over an entire movie and i think he also just in terms of rhythm the pace of his comedy is unlike anybody else that maybe someone we talked about before mel brooks you could kind of make a comparison in terms of the relentlessness of his humor especially mm-hmm. in some of his earlier work where there is no breathing room from the setup and punchline of a joke mm-hmm. um so I, I guess it's it's just interesting that you you kind of gravitate towards the music and some of the i guess more stylistic nuances of his movies well, and I've, let me let me ask you this when you on. hear <laughs> when you <laughs> okay i got gotcha. you whenever you hear the song okay don't stop me now by queen do you not think of the bar fight in Shaun of the dead no oh wow okay yeah i don't I, and i it took me and I, I was honestly expecting you to reference baby driver because i figured that's where that song would have come from but oh wow yeah, I okay. but like and like saying it, or like you you referencing that. Yeah, I can remember that from mm-hmm. I, can, I remember the bar fight scene, but it it's it's the writing I think the writing and the editing more than anything that that really grabs me more than the the music or the or the visuals. I don't know. It's just it's an interesting thing. Now before before we dive in properly, have you are you familiar with the YouTube channel Every Frame a Painting? No. Okay. So it was a relatively short-lived channel of basically video essays about different things in movies. And there's one that I may reference a time or two about Edgar Wright and his use of the frame to tell jokes and specifically his use of editing. Okay. And, you know, it... Because it is in every one of his movies, that same style of editing, Mm -hmm. it's definitely something that I think is actually do we know who his editor is is it the same I, person I meant every to look time? I meant to look that and his fight choreographer because that's another thing that I think more on the visual side his fight choreography does have a certain feeling to it Let's see here Edgar Wright editor well a name came up Paul Macklis an Australian film and television editor worked on TV series such as Black Books and the IT crowd, as well as Edgar Wright's television series Spaced and feature films Scott Pilgrim, The World's End, and Baby Driver. Okay. So, 
regular collaborator more than regular, I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it looks like the... Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz shared the same editor as well. Okay. Yeah, so the fact that World's End I am not seeing on this particular list, that would be Chris Dickens. Okay. The great editor Chris Dickens. The fact that there is a break in that trilogy and Mm -hmm. there is a kind of through line in similar feelings of the editing. Sure. I I will... Definitely say that it is an Edgar Wright trait and not necessarily the work of the editor Yeah, per se. Agreed. So, I mean, you mentioned Spaced. Yeah. That was um, his television show on BBC before he jumped into feature films. Yes, featuring a lot of the faces that you would come to see later on. Actually, the only one that I can't place... And I'm sure we'll see it as we're going through the filmography. But Jessica Hines, who, if I'm not mistaken, was kind of the love interest of sorts. But it's got Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, who you'll see in a good bit of his work. Julia mm-hmm. Deacon, who was also, I believe, a regular. And Mark Heap, who I don't recognize in anything except one of the bartenders from, from The World's End. Oh. So there might have been a cool little a sneak, sneaky sneaky poo in yeah it was i i don't want to say that i'm like i don't want to really like label myself as a spaced fan because i don't think that i've seen enough of it to kind of like earn that title but Mm -hmm. i know of its cultural significance in the kind of nerd community and uh, i don't know that i've ever seen this on a tv show before which i will say while it might have been a short run tv show a tv series in general it is way more difficult to attain this they have a hundred percent rotten tomato score 97 audience score. Really? Yeah. How many um, series was it? I think it was a single. It, it might have been two. Let me look. Yeah, two seasons. Okay. Wow. So, and both of them, yeah, both of them were at seven episodes each. First season was in 1999. Second season was in 2001. Both are at 100% critical. Okay. Which is wow. pretty astonishing. Yeah. That is. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on space, but I do think it's significant. It's a significant part of kind of how he got there. I think it was a, a great kind of playground for him, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost to find their their stride early. And I think that if you if you watched Spaced, not knowing who Edgar Wright was, you would I mean, it would be very difficult if you had seen any of his other films to not connect the dots that mm-hmm. Edgar Wright was the the through line there. Yeah. So I guess we should probably get you know we do have a knack for finding directors with just smashes right out of the gate. Yeah. I guess we can consider Shaun of the Dead his first for all intents and purposes. He did some work with... He did some amateur films, but yeah, for all intents and purposes, his first was Shaun of the Dead, which came out in 2004. Mm -hmm. The same year as the Dawn of the Dead remake by one Zack Snyder. Yes. Um... You've got a pretty solid cast and a lot of people that you'll continue to see over and over again. you got Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. You also had Kate Ashfield, who I know she... Oh, there was something that I saw her in not too long ago, but I can't remember what it was. Anyway, probably not important to this. Kate Ashfield playing the love interest. Lucy Davis, who some people... If you ever watched the Sabrina show on Netflix, she plays one of the aunts. Oh. Yeah. She was the meek girl that was in the relationship with David, who was in love with 
Simon's Simon Pegg's girlfriend okay. ex. Yeah, yep. David played by Dylan Morin, who you will see in a number of things, and then one of my favorite recurring actor that he uses, which would be the fantastic Bill Nye. Yeah. Nye? 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 Yeah. 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 He, he steals... In, in Shaun of the Dead, he steals really every scene that he's in and somehow is able to do this brilliant sneak attack at an emotional in a movie that up until that point has was nothing but silly like there was no heart right. or every every potential emotional beat is played for laughs that it's ridiculous to expect that of, of a Simon Pegg's character and then somehow I guess spoilers for all these movies should we like get that out of the way is that necessary yeah yeah okay. that's fine okay although here's something that's interesting about Edgar Wright's movies particularly the first three hmm. typically they start with a summary of the entire plot yeah just in different words. Yeah. But it's it's, it's one of those things that, that, you know, his first three movies at least, they lay out beat for beat exactly what is going to happen in the movie. And it's still, it's something that you, you don't even realize until you've seen the entire thing and you go back and say like, oh, oh damn, like that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of his, one of the more fun things to try to watch on that side. Like after you know... That that's a thing to look out for. And even, I mean, I know you're thinking about the Cornetto trilogy, but even thinking about movies like Scott Pilgrim, even that has a lot of those elements of, like, it's not necessarily telling the entire story up front, but it kind of tells you about the next chapter at the end of the previous chapter. Like, it's always mm-hmm. kind of predicting one element ahead. <coughs> yeah. Excuse me. So, yeah, Shaun of the Dead is Shawn, basically a, the character Shaun and his buddy Ed, played by Nick Frost, they decide to... Well, I guess they don't really decide much. They kind of find themselves in the middle of a zombie apocalypse that they have promptly slept through mm-hmm. and then <laughs> kind of stumble their way into a bunch of sh- a bunch of shenanigans, Chris. Just a bunch mm-hmm. of... Just a, a rigmarole, if you, if you will. Antics ensue. Yeah. It's great. I, I will say having... And I probably need to go back and watch it another time. I would say of the Cornetto trilogy, it is not... It's not at the top for me. Okay. And my opinion might have been swayed because I just watched another one of his Cornetto Trilogy movies for the first time in a while right before we uh, started recording. And I found a new interest or a new appreciation for it. So I don't really know where this falls on the three. What about you? So I would say it's my least favorite. Now, that is not to say it is by any means a bad movie. No, 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 no. But when you compare it with the... So, we've mentioned Trilogy. So, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End all make up what is known as the Cornetto Trilogy. Cornetto is a brand of ice cream treat, much like the Nestle drumsticks in the United States. They make a singular appearance in each one of these movies. It is a... There was a film trilogy whose director i cannot remember it's a series of french films and it's called the three colors trilogy Hmm. and each movie is titled a different color so this is the three flavors cornetto trilogy which is a send-up of that and each one of the entries has a different color cornetto in it red for Shaun of the dead obviously then you have 
Blue. I believe blue for yep. Hot Fuzz and yep. then green for The World's End. Am I correct? Yeah. Very, very yep. appropriate colors for each. Yes. Yes. And so that is what we mean when we are referencing this trilogy. So yeah. they do not have any narrative connection, but you see many of the same actors show up again. Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Bill Nighy, Rafe Spall, Martin Freeman. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that Rosamund Pike is in mm-hmm. two of them, if I'm not mistaken. She's not. I don't know. I think she's only in the one. I know she's not in Hot Fuzz. Okay. And well, I don't then, think she's in this one. At any rate, a lot of the same actors yeah. and some similar motifs. Yeah. And... There's a there's a, a not a reliance, but there's definitely I mean there are, are winks and nods throughout, and I think a lot of it just comes down to like kind of calling back to Shaun of the Dead because I can say, while it is wildly underperformed, I remember hearing about this movie all over high school, uh, mm-hmm. or I guess this would have been yeah high no yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, it, it definitely, I don't know about it all happening, like, right when the movie opened, but it definitely made an impact. But, I mean, some of the things that you'll see later on in the Cornetto trilogy, like the falling over some sort of offense was mm-hmm. a recurring thing. It just, it just, it all kind of builds off of this one, which is why I have a tough time saying it's my least favorite of the three. But I think that it definitely, it is a, it is a starting point for Edgar Wright kind of experimenting with what what he can get away with, what he can, you know, what audiences are going to respond to. It definitely feels like he's still kind of finding his feet with this one relative mm-hmm. to the films that feel just a little bit more accomplished, I guess. feels like they're trying to be yeah. something bigger than what Shaun of the Dead is trying to be. So Shaun of the Dead, I remember the tagline was, it's a romantic comedy with zombies. <laughs> and... Yeah, and it, it was picked up by Working Title Films, which is mm-hmm. known for producing British rom-coms. Okay. Which Edgar Wright took a great amount of delight in. Yeah. That they were the ones who picked it up. But my issue with it is that, like you were saying, a lot of the beats are played for laughs, which is fine. But then in the third act, you have this very harsh shift into... Things getting really ugly and emotional and, like, hopeless all of a sudden. And then it ends on a a brighter note. But it's still, it's just jarring. Yeah. And it's just a matter of, in a vacuum, it's not necessarily a problem. Like, it's definitely jarring, but okay, fine. But when you compare it to the other two and how they handle the tone through, I think that this one is easily the weakest in that regard for sure it, see in that regard i would dis i wouldn't say it i wouldn't say it's it's not innocent of that problem but I, I would argue that the world's end not to get too far ahead but the world's end has that same problem and the reason that i would tend to give Shaun of the dead a little bit more slack than world's end was number one it is the first but number two that's also how a lot of zombie movies play out you've got the initial inciting incident which they kind of brush over for laughs in Shaun of the Mm -hmm. Dead. But usually after that, like if you think about the Dawn of the Dead, the original Romero film, that large, and and the Zack Snyder remake, that that middle section really is a lot more of a personality piece than it is a zombie movie. And then things start to go down with Marauders and Romero's version and 
just bad stuff happening in Snyder's version. And it all of a sudden has that, like, I mean, pretty jarring. I don't know. I, I feel like that's just kind of par for zombie movies. Sure. Same okay. with, like, like yeah, 20, I mean, days, 20 Days Later has that in kind of smaller spurts. But I, I, I don't know. I, I get, I'm willing to give Shaun of the Dead a little bit more credit than The World's End for that problem. And I don't think that it's a unique issue. Because I would say Scott okay. Pilgrim also takes that emotionally a little bit more. We'll, we'll get into it. But, yeah, Shaun of the Dead, I mean... From a critical perspective and a reception from audiences, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes score for critics and 93% for audience. So super wow. consistent. Yeah. It's one yeah. of the things that Unanimous. is one of the things that's a, just not alarming, but just like uh, amazing to me is how consistent his Rotten Tomatoes is. I mean, there is mm-hmm. there in his attributed films that he has worked on, not just directed or 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 produce, but like any involvement in, he's got only one film or sorry, two films that are rotten audience scores. And one of the, the one that does have enough critical reviews in it's 80% on the critics and 53 on. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, and what is that out of print? He plays an unknown character. So it's an acting film. He has, he has no yeah. So I mean, of the films that he played a part in creating rather than just acting in, mm-hmm. his his only rotten film is Fistful of Fingers, which was his first film in 1995. It has a 54% audience score, but I don't think they even have enough critical reviews to warrant sure. uh, a critic score. So not really a a fair comparison. But yeah, I mean everything else is 70s and above. So mm-hmm. and the 70s are pretty sparse so anyway we go from Shaun of the dead in 2004 to hot fuzz in 2007 second of the cornetto trilogy where would this rank for you before we get into it i would say this is the funniest of the three yeah okay like yeah by a Um, long shot i think yeah yeah it's hysterically funny from start to finish and this is the one that sticks out to me, some of the the use of the frame, like mm-hmm. things entering and exiting the frame and yeah. that, yeah, there's just some, there's small inconsequential moments, but they're just, they're so unexpected. And me and my brother agree it has one of the greatest single shots in like cinematic comedy history. And that is Timothy Dalton's uh, oh, character. His, his picture? Standing next to <laughs> a portrait of himself making the exact same face and same posture. And it, the, the way Timothy Dalton plays that character and the way he is written oh, yeah. is spot on. The Because that's a gag you've seen before, but I for was just one reason say, or another, it just, it's perfect. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say is the, the thing that's so incredible about that gag is that he is able to elevate a joke that is not a, I mean, it's not innovative in any way, shape or form, but he's able no. to elevate that to a level that is, that feels like it's the first time you've seen that gag. Like if mm-hmm. I were to see that, even if I'd seen it a million times before, if I saw it afterwards, like, oh, they're doing the thing from Hot Fuzz. Like that's kind of, right. yeah, it's, it's so good. So you've got, uh. I only say this because I, I'll, I'm going to bring it up later, but a very unique story relative to Shaun of the Dead. I, and I appreciate that. You've got uh, Simon Pegg goes the complete opposite end of the spectrum. He goes from burnout loser in Shaun of the Dead to, like, 
basically John McClane had a baby with Rambo and Nicholas Angle <laughs> Nicholas Angel fell out. I mean like the the super cop to end all super cops. And because he is such a super cop, he is assigned away from London because he's making all of the other police look bad. And so he gets transferred to I'm trying to remember the name of the town of the village. I'm trying I'm imagining the chief saying or the constable saying the name of the town. Anyway, he gets Sanford. Sanford, yes. Put Sanford yes. on the map. Yes, he gets transferred to a little village called Sanford and it it at at first glance could not be a more boring assignment for a super cop until it is. Mhm. Until it isn't. Or, n- yeah. Until it isn't. Is not, not isn't not yeah until it is yeah. until it is right sure. mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean now, it's just... the, the the thing is the way you described him actually is a bit of a is a bit incorrect and also what the movie is kind of like playing on you say he's john mcclain had a babe had a baby with rambo when in fact he's he's very 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 by the book yeah that's fair and he's very very good at what he does Nick Frost plays the is he the son of the yeah, constable? He's is it Butter Butterman? Yeah. PC mm-hmm. Danny Butterman. Yep. And because Nick Angel is such a great cop from the big city, he assumes that he is John McClane and Rambo's child. And that's partially because he got stabbed through the hand by Father Christmas, who was played by <laughs> Do you know who played Father Christmas? Peter Jackson. That, that Peter Jackson. Peter. Hoo-ya! Ma fucking Jackson. Mm-hmm. That's what the yep. M stands for in Peter M. Jackson. Yep. Well, he also blew a crackhead's head off with a Kalashnikov, so, you know. Yeah. Many yeah. achievements. <laughs> of Nicholas Angel. So, so yeah, but he, he's in this, this little town that is Village of the Year every year. And, you know, of course, there's something afoot. I do think that Timothy Dalton is probably my favorite part of it. Wow. Just singular performance of the movie. I mean, from his, his very introduction, you know, Nick Angel is on his morning jog and Timothy Dalton's character, you know, jogs up next to him. He's like, lock me up. I'm a slasher. <laughs> of prices. Of prices. <laughs> Because he runs the local grocery store, Simon Skinner. The local supermarket. Yeah. Yeah. So, ah, I go back and forth with a couple of people. So, Jim Broadbent as Inspector Frank Butterman Mm -hmm. is so good and does something that I think is really impressive and that he creates this really silly, ridiculous character in, like, just, I mean, in, like, the, the. The chief inspector who is just too, too nice. And you know that Mm -hmm. coming into it pretty early on. But he creates a really menacing villain when he needs to. And so I I think that that's a pretty notable part of it. The other thing that I find really fun is Patty Considine, who I know is, has been in a a few of their thing, of, of Edgar Wright's movies. And he, you would know him from The Outsider on HBO, Coming to America, which I think, was it coming to America? Or it's right, in America. Sorry, not coming to America. Very different movie. In America, which is like an Irish immigration story. But 
him the the Andes, which are played by Patty Considine and who was the other one you mentioned? Rafe Spall. Their jabs back and forth with Angle and or Angel and Butterman are some of the <laughs> just my most dry hilarious things like that that's the one those are the things that i feel like i always quote the most is like oh yeah because we all sell apples around here don't we it's like your, your mom sells apples and raspberries <laughs> that or the <laughs> see the the visual gag that always gets me in the movie is when angel's getting the tour around the station and then mm-hmm. frank butterman's like i'm 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 guessing you're wondering why we call them the andes and mm-hmm. Angel, just like with no humor whatsoever, is like, because they're both named Andrew. And then I forgot what exactly Nick Frost's character says, but all of a sudden, out like he says something kind of smart assy. And out of nowhere, a trash can just comes and hits Nick Frost like right in the head. And it was <laughs> theoretically from one of the Andes just chucking up <laughs> trash can out of right. the room. <laughs> right. Right. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it, it's about as, to me, it's about as perfect of a comedy as I could ask for in every joke hits. I can't think of a single dud throughout the movie. Um, and it's like jokes per minute is unlike anything I've ever seen. And the movie mm-hmm. begins with a joke and ends with a joke. Like there is no, there's no room left for mm-hmm. downtime. And, and, it, and the story itself is definitely interesting like it plays into the kind of whole whodunit mystery yeah aspect really really well so there's there's not really any part of this movie that suffers for another part you know the jokes don't overpower everything about it but the plot doesn't you know you don't have these long drawn out exposition bits yeah it just kind of all unfolds naturally as the jokes keep coming and coming and coming and yeah i mean what you said you you pretty much like nailed it it's about as perfect a comedy as you could hope for now i think that the thing that can be said about this and Shaun of the dead mm-hmm. is the genres it's sending up and Shaun of the dead the romantic comedy and zombie films and in this one you know america big american action cop mm-hmm. movies michael bay bad boys is specifically referenced <laughs> a few times yeah like it was done with a the way any good parody or spoof is done like we talked about with mel brooks with yeah. a knowledge of what it is you're spoofing and a deep appreciation and love for that genre i think the because di- i was going to bring mel brooks up in comparison i think the difference is when you think about mel brooks i'm thinking like specifically about Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, and Robin Hood Men in Tights. Mm-hmm. Those three movies, they they send up the genre, but kind of at expense of the genre. And I'm not saying that is a bad thing, but like there's a camp element to Mel Brooks's work, even like Spaceballs, right? Like I mean, part of the joke is the kind of the the shoddiness of the sets or the miniatures mm-hmm. that they're using things like that and what i think is really unique about edgar wright in terms of at least uh, a form of spoof or parody is that if i feel like if edgar wright were to were to have done Spaceballs, it would look like a denny villeneuve movie because edgar wright felt that that is what those movies are supposed to look like so he doesn't make mm. To me, he doesn't make a zombie movie that looks like an Edgar Wright movie the way that Mel Brooks does. 
but now hmm. I, I think part of that would have to do with the era in which Mel Brooks was making movies. Sure, sure. There's there's an the, element of that, but I think I, I think the intention is still there of he is trying to lampoon a the cheapness of it. A, a, right. Well, but he's he's trying to lampoon the genre, and I don't think that that's what I, I think that. It's like a it's like a good roast versus mm-hmm. like the Comedy Central stuff that you see now where it's the same people in a room every every time they've done it. But like the old roasts, mm-hmm. they were cutting and they were harsh and they were not afraid to pull like some low blows against the person that was being roasted. But mm-hmm. it was very clear that it was all coming from a place of love, not just trying to one up each other with 9-11 jokes the way that like the sure. current ones do. So I, I, I do think that that's a, a core difference between the two is he he tries to make a fantastic version, whether it's a zombie movie or a cop film or even like a chase heist film. He tries to make the best version of that while also commentary, you know, using the writing to be the commentary on it rather than the production itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So we get Hot Fuzz in 2007, and then his next feature would be 2010 with Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Featuring, the World. Yes, featuring Michael Sarah, Kieran mm. Culkin, Anna Kendrick, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Allison Pill, Aubrey Plaza, Jason Schwartzman. <gasps> Chris Evans. Chris, oh, Brie Larson. The, the whole gang. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I constantly forget about Brandon Brie Larson. Ralph. Oh. Brandon Routh, take me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, are you familiar all right. at all with the? <laughs> are you familiar at all with the source material for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World? I I know that it's a thing. I know it's a, a graphic novel mm-hmm. with a fairly like rudimentary cartoonish kind of uh, style to it. Yeah, which I mean, just is what it is. I'm not saying that saying that completely neutrally but yeah that's really all i know about it i've kind of in talking about this movie over the years and with my critiques of it i'm told that scott himself is not supposed to be a particularly likable guy yeah and boy if you want a character to be unlikable likable cast michael sarah i guess um yeah. So yeah. for for the longest time, and I, I still I still kind of hold to this. Mm-hmm. The biggest mistake this movie made was casting Michael Sarah as the lead. Really? And I I think from a if we're talking purely from a like financial success standpoint, yes. Hmm. Because yeah. Michael Sarah is one of the most frustrating creatures to ever walk the earth because to call him an actor is an insult to actors. He's a set piece. He yeah. just happens to be in a lot of really good movies. And the only new thing he brought to this that he hasn't brought to any of his projects before it was he learned how to do a determined face. But other than that, like he is flat one note and just, a little off-putting. I, I'm not a fan, unless I, you weren't clear on that. So, so we're. I'm getting kind of a indifferent vibe. Is that is that reasonable to assume? 
No, kind of like it like isn't. not really like kind of take him or leave him. Like it's fine. No, leave him in a fucking dumpster. So like, if we're gonna just define it harshly, you've seen Purple Rain, right? With uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Not quite. Mm. I. Mm. <laughs> Never mind. You ruined my joke. Anyway. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll, we'll start over. Go ahead and hit me with it again. You've seen Purple Rain, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Rosie O'Donnell? Scott Pilgrim versus the world. (laughs) Or Michael Sarah versus me. You know what? I know that none of you listening right now probably know about the past sins we have unleashed on the world in the form of the other podcast we are a part of. But... One of the traditions we had on there was a call out. Mm-hmm. We haven't done one of those on this podcast. So right now I'm laying the gauntlet down. Michael Sarah, Charleston, South Carolina. You pick the time, you pick the place. Come on down. We're going to duke it out. I'm going to take your ass down. You've been called out. For a second. You know what it... we're going to do? We're going to make a scene. For a second, it sounded like Boom. you said, you said, it sounded like you said dookie. So just, you know. <laughs> So now that Michael Sarah has been understandably and and regrettably called out, yeah. So outside of Michael Sarah, how do you feel about Scott Pilgrim versus the World? I love every second of it. <laughs> like I it's said, a great movie. He he happens to find himself in terrific films, and this is no exception. It's weird, and I'll admit that, like as I've gotten older, like. There's there's an element of it that's a little cringy, but mm-hmm. that's okay. Mm-hmm. What what element is cringy to you? I don't know. Just kind of the whole vibe. Like it's, I mean, the the fact of the matter is, like we've all known people like this. In fact, we both have friends like this that are very very like, look how indie I am. Look yeah. how quirky I am, yeah. you know, and that's, I mean, that's fine. That's mm-hmm. fine because though this is not a video game movie, we it's one of the better video game movies yeah. out there. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I think it's the best, it's the best commentary or not. Oh, it's not really comment. It's not making a comment on video games. Mm-mm. I think it's the best integration of a video game into yes, a movie. Yes, of video game motifs. And yeah. and to be honest, I think it's it actually does kind of speak to the experience of the plot of the movie to mm-hmm. an extent. So, what is the plot of the movie? Let's let's get into that, I guess. So, Michael Sarah is uh, playing <laughs> Scott Pilgrim who is not only a hipster, a Canadian hipster, but he is a, a like ruthless, self-obsessed, narcissistic woman in like the grossest way possible. He seems to be a serial like almost ghoster. He is dating high school girls in like it. It's an element that I I go back and forth on because I think that the movie is making a commentary on this, but it mm-hmm. does tend to let a guy off a hook rather easily for like what's probably statch. Like obviously like they don't like it's, it's pretty clearly defined that like they don't really ever get physical, but like he's like 
in his mid twenties, theoretically, mm-hmm. and dating like a a high school girl, and it's acknowledged by all of his bandmates that like he's dating a high school girl, and right. like everybody else thinks it's really fucking weird, but the movie never really like addresses like. I don't know. I feel like he gets off the hook pretty easily for that whole, like, kind of manipulative thing that he does. Anyway, he, at a party, finally meets this girl, Ramona Flowers, who seems to be the exact ingredient he needs to get his life on track and stop being such a loser creep, and then finds out that she has baggage Mm -hmm. in the form of seven deadly exes that, to win her affection, because she is also a prop in the movie, you have to defeat her seven deadly exes in a series mm. of very thematic challenges. I do give this movie a lot of credit. Some of the most rational characters, if not all of the rational characters in the movie are female characters in, mm. I'm thinking like Anna Kendrick, his sister, Kim Pine played by Allison pill, who is probably my favorite like side character in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. The girl that plays the drums. Yeah. And then Julie powers, Aubrey Plaza and even Ramona flowers herself, but it's good. I think it, it's, it, I like it for a lot of the same reasons I like another Michael Sarah romantic comedy, Nick and Nora, in that it feels like a much more realistic approach to telling a story about a relationship than what you're getting, for the most part, at this period in time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Now, the the thing that's odd about it is that each of the battles with these evil exes is played out like a boss fight in a video game yeah complete with coins and power-ups and health bars and all kinds of like just wild off the wall unrealistic stuff like that but i Mm -hmm. think that to a immature or perhaps just like kind of teenage mind there is an element of that particularly if you've grown up playing video games right that trying to meet a given challenge can sometimes be thought of in terms of a video game. I know that particularly nerdy people do that because I'm speaking from experience. So it's, I don't know, it's a very cool way to kind of integrate that and it makes for a very, very visually arresting kind of Mm -hmm. movie. And it also plays into the fact that it does come from a comic. Right. There's some, you know, comic book kind of splash page images Mm -hmm that are kind of thrown in throughout and just that same kind of frenetic, you know, rhythmic editing style that goes Mm -hmm. into it. But I mean, yeah, some of the, the like hip lingo is a little cringy, but I mean, does it date the movie a little bit? Maybe, but at the same time, that's not necessarily a bad thing because it was a movie of its time. You know, yeah. and I I think that this one was the most disappointing to me in how poorly it performed. Yeah, it's on Rotten Tomatoes critically and by audience. Well, I guess between the two of them, it's the most consistently low. It's an 82 percent critical, 84 percent audience. Yeah, it's it's basically just his lowest performing from a review perspective of the films he's directed. Which, by the way recall that you did say it's in the 80s and that's oh i know it's performing critically so like that's just just something to point out that like you know he his movies are 
terrific. Yeah, his uh, misses are what we hope most directors like land like just bullseyes are. So he, I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's very difficult to be critical of of his work. But up until this point, it's his highest grossing at a whopping thirty two point eight million domestic. Was it yep. seriously his highest? Yeah, Shaun of the Dead was thirteen point five. Hot Fuzz was twenty three point six, and then this was thirty two point eight. Them's COVID Good numbers, Lord. buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Ooh. But this was a movie that cost eighty five million dollars to make, and I believe its mm. global take was just a hair shy of fifty million. So he didn't make his money um, back, especially with no. marketing, because this was by far his most marketed film. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I again I'm I maintain very like you know, jokiness aside, I think that casting Michael Sarah like in hindsight for the sake of the movie itself wasn't the worst idea mm-hmm. because Scott Pilgrim is a fundamentally unlikable, you know, sleazy kind of person. But you know, the only thing he had really been known for at this point was Juno and Superbad. Yeah. And it was like telling everybody, like, hey, you know that awkward guy from uh, Superbad that speaks and, you know, under his breath mutters and doesn't change his face? Yeah, we're going to have him star in a movie. And the I guess the visual pizzazz just didn't, wasn't enough for people. But I'm glad I saw it in theaters because... It was it was fantastic. So yeah, I think the the reason that Michael Sarah makes sense is because if you if you cast, let's say you cast like a truly unlikable character, then you just got a Safdie Brothers movie. Like that's like I guess that's the problem. <laughs> is what was the movie with Robert Pattinson? Was it Good Time? Good Time. Yeah, I mean that's essentially what you get is like that. They're to me their shtick is like doing what Breaking Bad wouldn't do, which is really, like, make you fucking hate the character. That's why Brian Cranston's so good as Walter White in Breaking Bad is because he does these truly, like, horrifying, despicable things, but Brian Cranston is a guy kind of like a Tom Hanks character who it's really difficult to, like, not root for on some level. And I think that Michael Cera has that quality. It's a little bit more manipulative because you're rooting for, like, the meek guy versus the guy that's earned the rooting for. But... He still has that quality. Whereas if you put, like, Percy from Green Mile in there, yeah, no, he's going to be, like, an absolute sleazeball, and you're not going to like him, and you're not going to want to root for him, and you're not going to want to follow him along this journey. And, like it or not, he's the eyes that we see the journey through. So, mm-hmm. I think it makes sense. I, th- I think that beyond just his box office draw, I think that from a from an execution standpoint, I think it makes sense to have a Michael Sarah type in the role. Um, could have been Paul. Could have been Paul Dano. Yeah, he's then, one of those actors that yeah. he's he's so good. He is good in everything, and I think he is a phenomenal actor. But for some reason, he's just got one of those faces. You know, just mm-hmm. mm, I don't know something about it. I just want yeah. just. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Next call out coming up soon, I guess. Maybe. <laughs> just Paul Dano's face, though. Not Paul Dano as a person. Right. Yeah. Right. Just a picture of Paul Dano, perhaps. <laughs> as the guy from Prisoners. That 
It's problematic. Oof. Never mind. Yeah. So <laughs> three years after Scott Pilgrim, we get The World's End, the final uh, rapper in the Cornetto trilogy. I would posit that The World's End combines most of the elements of Hot Fuzz and most of the elements of Shaun of the Dead. And I stand by this, even though I just, I just finished watching it. It doesn't do what Hot Fuzz does as well, and it, it, it doesn't, sorry, it doesn't do what the best of Hot Fuzz does. Because I think really what you're, what you're combining is a lot of the action elements from Hot Fuzz with mm-hmm. the also kind of general intrigue of like what's going on that Hot Fuzz has. Mm-hmm. But then... Mm-hmm you're taking a lot of the more kind of like uh, uh, personality beats from Shaun of the Dead. Like, what's his name? King. I can't remember his first, na- his first name. Gary King. Gary King. Gary King's character is basically just like if Shaun went way bad. Like, if Shaun was way lazier than he was, he would be Gary King. And I think that there's so, a... Oh, go ahead. There's an interesting reversal of roles in mm-hmm. this one because... Though in Shaun of the Dead, both Sean and Ed are both, like, kind of burnout losers. Sean does have his shit at least somewhat, somewhat together. Yeah. He has a functioning relationship. In, you know, Hot Fuzz, he's got it all together, but not really. He's, like, taken... It's like he went from, you know, Sean to Nick Angel, and it's just way in the wrong direction but yeah. still in both of those movies he's the straight man to Nick Frost's Ed and Danny Yeah. so in this one that role is kind of reversed because mm-hmm. Gary King is hopelessly living in the past whereas yeah. the rest of his compatriots have grown up moved on have lives and you know in this one Nick Frost's character, whose name is escaping me, um, Andy Knightley. You know, I never Andy, realized. Yeah, I never realized the name play that they have here. Sorry, go on. I I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a second. But yeah, he, you know, he he's sober. Like he doesn't even drink. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty hard like switch of those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Go on. I think you were still in the middle of your general thoughts about the film. No, yeah. I, I mean, to me, I think my issue with it is it. there is a really, I would argue, powerful story. And I think this movie deals with the, the lives of the characters with a lot more interest than Hot Fuzz or Shaun of the Dead. Like, Shaun of the Dead, it's really mostly about the relationship between Shaun and his ex, and then Shaun and his mother. And Hot Fuzz, it's really, again, kind of Nick Nicholas Angel kind of creating an identity for himself outside, or a personality for himself outside of just, you know, top cop. And this one... just it feels like it digs deeper because there's a lot more elements at play in terms of like one of the the scenes that i had completely forgotten about but it was i forgot that which character it was but it was the it was the really kind of wimpy one the one that was getting bullied and saw his bully at the bar and then like breaks down because the bully just didn't even recognize him and it's like been eating at him for 20 something years but the like to the bully he's just a stranger in a bar kind of thing was was that Martin Freeman? 
No, it was the other one. No, it was neither of them. It was the other one. Oh, Eddie Marzen. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Um, Yep. Yeah, so like it, yep. it, it takes a lot more time with character moments like that that aren't played for laughs. And I do mm-hmm. appreciate that in the movie a lot. But I think mm-hmm. it tries to go for a very similar, like always going fast-paced rhythm. It does it a little bit more with the action in this than with the jokes like in Hot Fuzz. But I don't know. It's not... There's just something missing. I think it doesn't feel enough like one of his films to be as iconic as like Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz. I think it's because, and and that's not fair to the movie, but I think it's because he's trying to evolve and not just make more Hot Fuzzes. So I don't want to even knock the movie for that. I think it's just when I think about what he has executed on more successfully, Hot Fuzz or World's End, I would say Hot Fuzz. But this I'd probably put in second place because it at least takes some chances with how it presents everything. Okay. See, I'm going to flip that. Because while I think Hot Fuzz is by far the funniest of the three, mm-hmm. I think that The World's End is the best movie of the okay. three. And a large part of that is because it does dig a lot deeper into the characters, who they are, and kind of their relationships with one another and specifically their relationship to their own past. Mm -hmm. And I think that Gary King is a wonderfully tragic character from the beginning. There is no point in the movie where you were supposed to think he is cool or anything even approaching that. Because, you know, it starts with him kind of rounding his friends up for, like, another hurrah. And at first, it's like, okay, this is going to be, like, this goofy kind of, you know, thing. And it's very quickly, as he is rounding up his friends, you see just how much pity there is in their handling of him. And especially when they first get together... Yeah. They kind of they there's these like shared looks of like oh my god. Yeah. Like and you know they go on and they're like okay, let's humor and maybe, you know, let, let's have a good time. Let's try to, you know, you know, get out and cut loose and have a good time, but even that doesn't last long because he is still exactly how he was when they left primary school and They've all moved on. And so it's about him coming to terms with the past and trying to move beyond it. And the 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 wordplay in some of this movie is just so brilliant. Like so the the basic premise is he rounds up all of his friends for a night of completing the golden mile, which is twelve pubs. You go to each one, it's much like the modern day Epcot drinking around the world. Had to throw in a Disney plug there. But at any rate, so they go to all these pubs, but they find out that this little town of Newton Haven that they all grew up in, something's off. And it turns out that it's mostly androids. Mm-hmm. And blanks. Spoiler alert, the androids blanks, yes. And the the blanks are all part of the quote network which is this alien presence or something that comes to 
basically make peace on these various different worlds by phasing out the problem people. And Gary, king of the humans, addresses the network, voiced by Bill Nighy, mm-hmm. and <laughs> tells them, in one of the, the funniest outbursts, why don't you get back in your rocket ships and fuck off back to Legoland, you... And... Yeah. <laughs> I laugh every time I even think of that. And so the, the the response from the network is, yeah, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, <laughs> the lights go out. Yeah. Have I told you the story about, like, about taking my brother to see that movie? No. So... This was when I was working at the IMAX theater locally. This was after our time at the old Palmetto Grande. Mm-hmm. But we, I brought my brother to see it on one of my days off. And there's a point where, you know, the network leaves and the power grid basically completely craps out. Sure. And it's this very kind of dramatic moment. And then... You know, everything goes dark. Well, at that very moment, the power cut out in our theater. Then the sound comes back on, but the picture on the screen did not. Mm. And the first thing we heard, I shit you not, was everyone remembers where they were when the lights went out. That's terrifying. Right. And I remember being like, this was not supposed to happen. And I sprinted upstairs and clocked in. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back when One going those, upstairs, but... the clock in made sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So the names are what I find interesting. And I can't believe, I don't even know if they made mention of this. So the characters, the five friends, you have Gary mm-hmm. King. Nick Frost plays Andy Knightley. Martin Freeman plays Oliver Chamberlain. Patty Considine plays Stephen Prince. And Eddie Marzen plays Peter Page. So you've got a king, a knightly, a chamberlain, a prince, and a page. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. That's pretty cool. And and Pierce Brosnan's character is Guy Shepard. Which is interesting given who Pierce Brosnan is. In the movie, and of course, wow. Reverend Reverend Green, played by Michael Smiley, the the drug. Yeah, it's it's a well it's a well done, well thought out movie, and I will say the action scenes are the some of the some of the action scenes are the most enjoyable of. I feel comfortable with any of his movies. I think I think it's because it's one thing to have like high wire work, like clear wire work and stuff, like you would get in uh, Scott Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. But, like, most of this appeared very much to be, like, well-edited, either well-edited or decent CGI, making mm-hmm. it really, really seem like Nick Frost is doing some pretty impressive, like, martial arts stuff. So, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just I think, considering who is performing the stunts, or appears to be performing the stunts, it makes it a little bit more enjoyable to me. A little bit more impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean... Like I said, it's my favorite of the three. Nice. Now, I'll I'll tell you one thing that's uh, a little odd. So, at the IMAX, we would do pre-screenings mm-hmm. for 
you know, we would invite friends and whatnot. So leading up to this movie, we did the two preceding nights. So I want to say this was Monday and Tuesday night. And then, because usually Wednesday was the night we would watch whatever the new movie was. And we did Shaun of the Dead, mm-hmm. and then Hot Fuzz, and then The World's End. Mm-hmm. Hot Fuzz had the biggest turnout of any pre-screening we ever did. Good. Ever. Love to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, that includes... You know, Star Trek Into Darkness, in which I know I personally had six people with me. Shout out. So, yeah, I, I, it was wild. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. So, next, I think we're going to get to our most contentious film, which would come in 2017, and that would be A One A Baby Driver. Yep. So, you mentioned off air to me that you didn't love that one, and yeah. I, you never elaborated. I'm curious what. So, couple of things. I unfortunately saw Baby Driver not like right after stuff started coming out about Kevin Spacey, but like I, I will say the Kevin Spacey. I guess you still have to call them allegations. The, the Kevin Spacey thing has not really spoiled too much movies that I previously really enjoyed him in. Like, Usual Suspects, I can still get through and not be too bothered by it. Seven, I can still get through. Seeing stuff afterwards, though, feels like a different thing for me for some reason. So Kevin Spacey's a little bit of a drag, but my bigger issue is Ansel Elgort. I don't like him. In the same way you said, like, some people just have a face, Ansel Elgort to me has a face. I don't like it. Yeah, I I find his... he, He feels like... Like a personification of Try Hard. I don't... I just don't like him. I, I don't find him in, interesting to watch in acting, really, ever. He feels... He feels like... And I mean this with as much malice as possible. He reminds me of a third grader reading at a sixth grade level. Oh. <laughs> okay. So... You're not even going to give him credit for the fact that his name was clearly made up and is something that is like a scrapped side character from Star Wars. What Ansel Elgort? No, I'm not because I if if that is the case, he didn't do it because it's ironic. He did it because he thinks it's cool. <laughs> and I don't like I just don't like him. He could be the nicest guy. I'm guessing not because he DJs. But he could be. Um, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to go ahead and do a double call out because we haven't done this shit in a while. Ansel Elgore, Charleston, South Carolina, wherever Chris Fabian is, he'll handle you. Okay? You're oh, called oh, out. Oh, You're I'm... called out. You're uh, called out, Ansel. Sick of oh, it. Wow. Yeah. You're not even going to call him to Kannapolis, North Carolina? Chris, I appreciate everything that you have done and will continue to do for me. Ansel, you're called the fuck out. All right. You heard it. Yeah. You heard it. Cage match for custody of Ansel Elgore. <laughs> so, things that I do like about this movie are most of the rest of the thing, uh, most of the rest of the elements. John Bernthal, John Hamm, Jamie Foxx. I don't really know her. I- Isa Gonzalez? Asa Gonzalez? The, um, the... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The love interest with John Hamm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All of them are, are perfectly fine. I think... The movie doesn't feel, 
I feel like I get the action elements that we get from like Scott Pilgrim and Hot Fuzz in Baby mm-hmm. Driver, but I don't. I feel like there's a level of sophistication that we're missing from this movie. Yeah, and it's mostly in the writing. Like it just the the writing dialogue wise and the. I don't know. I, I maybe it's the fact that I, I there's like nothing tethering me to his other movies from this. Like physically, like there's no regular actors in this that you would expect, which isn't fair because he, like he should be able to work with anybody and yeah. I don't know, it just doesn't it doesn't click. I don't I don't want to go as far as saying it's a bad movie. It's not a movie that I enjoy. Okay. It feels like uh, this movie feels like what people were expecting out of Drive. And I like what we got out of Drive a lot better. Okay. You know, I I think you're right to a degree in, in saying that. Thank you. Well, because people that didn't like Drive, aside from being stupid, just Idiots. were expecting, you know, just something more conventional. And yeah. while this is more conventional, it certainly isn't, you know, straight up conventional. No, it's not. Because Ansel Elgore plays a getaway driver who has tinnitus, mm-hmm. and so to make up for it, and one of the, one of my very favorite, this is an excuse to do whatever the hell I want, plot bits, plays music very loud, yeah. pretty much at all times to drown out the tinnitus. Mm-hmm. And the movie opens with probably the peak of his choreography and editing and Ansel Elgore's character, Baby, dancing down the street, singing a song in a way that could have been like like one of the high-level OK-Go okay music videos. Yeah. Where everything is just in sync and as he's saying things, things are happening that are exactly what he's saying or words appear just in the background and it's all very natural and it's one of those things that the the first time i saw this movie it was probably a good 30 seconds into the sequence that i realized what i was seeing mm-hmm. that that everything he was saying was appearing in some way shape or form and it that was a a strong strong start some of the other action bits i think were all right but this is one where the the use of music and choreographing action to the music was just taken to a whole other level. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I think that was probably more the point than anything else. I mean, I to be fair, I haven't read any interviews, at least that I can recall, about this movie that Edgar Wright gave as far as like what he was trying to do with this movie, mm-hmm. but it very much show, seems like a technical showcase of his sure. editing and choreography prowess, and I think that it does that to great effect. Now, mm-hmm. I don't have the issues you do with Ansel Elgore. I kind of see where you're coming from, but... His DJ name I... is Ann Solo. I'm not making that up. Huh. Yeah. So, do with that okay. what you will. Anyway, okay. You well, don't have issues with you don't have issues with Ann Solo the way that I do. Right. So I mean, you know, he can dance and whatever. So like, yeah, that didn't bother me. He and Lily James were very cute 
And they were. Mm-hmm. They were. But no, I mean, it, it definitely was a movie that was aiming for style over substance. Yeah, that's fair. And and that in and of itself is. You know, it was very clearly the aim of the movie, and I think it did so spectacularly. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say it's my favorite of his movies, but it's definitely the one that I think put him into kind of the public consciousness a little bit more than he was previously. Yeah, that's fair. So. Now, we talked about Baby Driver being his most, his highest grossing film with a big old asterisk on it. Any guesses as yeah. to the asterisk? No, actually. Well, most listeners, hopefully some of you will know what I'm referring to. It made $180 million at the box office. And it's, I think, let me check. One of only a couple of screenwriter credits that he has without directing, which would be Ant-Man. If you're going by the book, Ant-Man coming out two years earlier was originally a project... I would say that would have come out in phase two, right? It did come out in phase two. If I'm... Yes, it was the epilogue of phase two of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because it's... Am I... Am I correct in that? Yes. Yeah. Because that followed Avengers uh, Age of Ultron. Yeah, yeah. And typically the, the way they kind of have been doing things is... You know, you have an Avengers movie that ends a given phase, except actually the next movie is usually a much smaller scale film and serves as kind of the epilogue to the phase that came before it. Similar so. similar to like what Game of Thrones did with all of their big moments, for the most part, were in episode nine of ten. And then you kind yeah. of get you get you get an episode to kind of cycle down from from mm-hmm. the manic episode they put you through yeah so ant-man i i know it was not it it would not uh, based on the original timeline it would not have been the epilogue i think it would have been firmly and i'm curious to see what if they had introduced it prior to age of ultron i'm curious how he would have factored in but he was lord millard right he was brought off i think before had they started shooting principal do you know no so i'm glad you circled back to this yeah because to me, this is the greatest, like, the the absolute worst case of what could have been. Yeah. In possibly the history of cinema. Because he was announced to be directing and writing Ant-Man in 2007. Yeah. Before Iron Man even came out. And... From what I understand, this was a legitimate situation of they couldn't come to an agreement on how things would play out. And my suspicion is that this has to do with the structure of power among the, you know, with Marvel Studios at the time. Because, you know, this was not long after Thor The Dark World and... You know, I, I mentioned that one because it is considered by most to be the biggest miss of the MCU. If you don't count Incredible Hulk. Sure. Yeah. 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 But a large part of that is because at the time, the Marvel Cinematic Universe 
well, Marvel Studios was beholden to the CEO of Marvel, who was a notorious douche nozzle. Yeah. And it wasn't until they started losing good talent like John Favreau, Joss Whedon, and Edgar Wright that Disney stepped in and fixed things. But it was a situation where he basically said, if I'm going to do this movie, it is going to be my movie and it is going to be what I say it's going to be. And from what I understand, he and Kevin Feige tried to make that happen and it Mm -hmm. just didn't. But he still retains a writing credit and there are still elements of his touch within the movie. Yeah. The most... The one that jumps out to me every time is the fight between Ant-Man and... (laughs) Yellow Jacket, I know exactly what you're talking about. Do you? Which one are you... Are you talking about the train? Yeah. That is... Yeah. That's definitely... That's definitely one of them. But the the one that I always think about is when they're in the suitcase. And one of them bumps into an iPod... That starts playing Queen. It just... I remember when I saw it, I was like, mm, know where that came from. We it, picked... We it picked... just... Oh, go ahead. No, no, I mean, it just... Because, like I said, when I hear Don't Stop Me Now, I think about Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. So, when I heard that, I was like, ah, oh, that's right. Man, this could have been even better. Yeah. Because I, I thought Ant-Man was great, but... Yeah. No, the 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 fight scene on the toy train set is it's the 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 scene the scene with the i mean the whole fight is really impressive but the scene yeah Mm -hmm. the scene with the with the one car falling off the track just Mm -hmm. very anticlimactically yeah that that reeks Mm -hmm. of of edgar wright edition but yeah Yeah. it's it, it definitely is a you know what could have been but i think you know it's tough to imagine because two filmmakers have made such a big impact and and really shifted the entire style of the, the MCU which would be James Gunn and Taika Waititi. And so it is interesting to think about like with a sandbox that's only so big if we had had a director as notable as Edgar Wright, right? Like let's say mm-hmm. Edgar Wright does Ant-Man and it hits the same way that Guardians hit for James Gunn or Thor Ragnarok hit for Taika Waititi as far as the studio saying, okay, we need to do more movies exactly like this. Like, what would the landscape have looked like going into Phase 3 if Edgar Wright had been the Zack Snyder of the MCU rather than James Gunn or Taika Waititi? You know? I don't know. But, I mean, it it's one of those things, like, I, I want to see what that looks like. Just oh, yeah. Just because... He is such a distinct voice, and like you said, you have James Gunn and Taika Waititi are two very, very distinct voices mm-hmm. that you know, like you like single handedly changed the course of this this you know juggernaut thing that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I think that Edgar Wright's sensibilities would have helped it even more because I'm. I can't tell you how upset I am by the fact that Peyton Reed directed the first, second, and will be directing the third Ant-Man movie. The director of such great films as The Breakup and Bring It On. Like, 
He just seems like a comedy workman director. I can't pick out anything about any movies of his that I'm like, oh, that's that's a Peyton Reed thing. It's almost and like getting really, getting Ron Howard to direct a Star Wars movie. <laughs> just doesn't seem very inspired now, does it? Mm, no. No, not really. <laughs> but, and, and the fact of the matter is, Ant-Man... The concept of that character is real weird. Mm -hmm. So that movie needed to be real weird. Mm -hmm. And it it wasn't. It wasn't bad. I quite liked it, but eh. yeah, eh. yeah. It's just so. it's a it's a feeling that it could have been better, which is fair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. But yeah, so Ant-Man, technically his most, uh, definitely easiest money he's ever made, I would say. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. so the only two films that we have left are the Sparks Brothers, which I know very little about. And then Last Night in Soho, which is an upcoming vehicle with Anya Taylor-Joy and what is the other girl's name? Thomas and McKenzie. Thomas and McKenzie. And Terrence Stamp and mm -hmm. Matt Smith. So that's also exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm real excited about this because it looks to be more pointedly a horror film. Mm-hmm. And his sensibilities in horror seem... I mean, it that it's something I want to see. When you have a director with a distinct style mm -hmm. i feel like there is a tendency especially if you you enjoy horror generally mm. to want to see them try their hand at that because i would love to see a a pure horror by christopher nolan mm -hmm. and edgar wright is definitely one of those directors and i'm i'm have you seen a trailer for it harrison no i have not no not that i can remember okay I've, yeah, I yeah. saw one that played before I saw Old. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, I knew that he had this coming out, but I hadn't really seen anything about it. But I'm very, very looking forward to this. Now, as far as the Sparks Brothers go, mm -hmm. the Sparks is a band that has been making music since, I want to say, the s late 70s, mm -hmm. early 80s. They have a very, very long career. Okay. And the way I've heard them described is your favorite band's favorite band. Oh, nice. They, okay. They've been very influential, but very much in the background. Mm -hmm. And they actually have a rock opera that is currently playing in limited release right now. They've actually got it at the Terrace Theater. Oh, nice. And... Hopefully I'll get a chance to see it just because I I like just discovered what it was. I saw it, I was like, what the heck is this? And I was like, yeah. Oh my god, they they have their own movie coming out. But yes, he just made a documentary about them and it is largely because much like Edgar Wright, he is known and appreciated among a certain group, but the vast majority of people, you know, have never heard of the Sparks, even though some of the music they listened to very well could have been influenced by them. Nice. My brother actually introduced me to them about two or three years ago. And, you know, I've 
kind of dabbled in their catalog, but it's a sound that sounds like many others in music, but to find out that they've been doing just that for so long, it's like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense, you know? So. Nice. Well, definitely worth checking out. So, Chris. Can I call you Chris? Harrison? No. Hmm. Well, Nick's brother, what have we learned today? <laughs> I think we learned that if you don't know who Edgar Wright is, or you have just discovered that you know who Edgar Wright is, watch all of his stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, seriously, he doesn't have a huge catalog. And to be honest, I don't think anybody would be remiss for seeing any of these films. Mm-hmm. I, I think that of the directors we have talked about so far, he's probably the one where it's hard to point to a film that I wouldn't recommend. I think you can jump in at any point mm-hmm. and still enjoy the rest of his work. It's not going to cast anything else in a different light. So Edgar Wright, to me, one of the most important voices in comedy. Check him out. And go see Last Night in Soho when it comes out, because, come on. And you know what? Go ahead. Tell him Nick's brother sent you. <laughs> yep. Yep. All right, Chris, where can they find us? They can find us on the internet. A uh, couple places on the internet, as a matter of fact. So we've got a, we've got a Googles. Mm-hmm. That's making a scene mail at gmail.com. Making a scene mail at gmail.com. Now to be clear, you're, Australia you're, is... you're talking about a, a Google email. Something like that, yeah. Okay, okay. Just making sure. Yeah. I'm trying to keep my head wrapped around everything. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, join the king of Australia. Send us an email, please. Then you can get it to us on the Facebooks. We've gotten one of those, and they were kind enough to include a recipe. So... That was cool. And then, and we've got an Insta. Mm-hmm. We got ourselves an Insta. You can Insta us. So, yeah, you can do that too. Slide into the DMs. Yeah, good. So, it's the worst that could happen yep. there. And so, given the recent developments, we are canceling our forthcoming OnlyFans page. So, for the developments in, in that regard, we'll follow. So, I, I do apologize. Yeah, we're going to have to move our our whole operation over to Christian Mingle, which is really going to be a drag. (laughs) At any rate, as always, thank you. We love you. (laughs) And uh, Harrison. Bye. Till next time.